Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, sharing insights from SVA's work and from across the social sector. Hello, I am Susie Riddell. I am the CEO of Social Ventures Australia, and I'm here today with Rob McLean. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. Rob, to give an overview, is a director emeritus of McKinsey & Company. He led the Australian and New Zealand practice for eight years, and his career spans commercial, government and not-for-profit sectors. He is a director of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, Australia's largest philanthropic foundation. He's a trustee of the Nature Conservancy in Australia and Asia. And his former roles include being the Dean of AGSM, the Australian Graduate School of Management. He was a director on the board of CSR, Dunlop, Elders, LJ Hooker, he was the chair of the Benevolent Society and a co-founder and the founding chair of Social Ventures Australia, for which we are very grateful. Thank you very much, Rob, for helping to set up SVA. Delighted to have you here with us today to talk about the new book that you've written together with Charles Conn, Bulletproof Problem Solving, The One Skill That Changes Everything. And looking forward to a conversation about how this applies in the social sector, as well as some of the government and commercial examples that you've got throughout the book. Rob, I really enjoyed uh, the overview of the need for more problem solving, but would love to hear from you. What, in your words, is problem solving? And what does the book propose as a process to help people like those in the social sector to get better at solving challenges? The problem solving we talk about um, in the book um, involve decisions where there's complexity, where there's uncertainty, where there's no straightforward answers, and usually where there's consequences um, if you don't get uh, the problem solving um, right. And then what we, um, so there, there are stakes involved as, as to why you need to have a good problem solving process. and. The, the process that we describe in the book, the seven steps process, is a process that we learnt at McKinsey and, um, and Charles in particular um, refined it so that it became the McKinsey way of, of, of doing things. And um, when we run, th- run it through with people that it involves defining a problem, disaggregating it, setting priorities, putting a work plan together, doing the analysis... Uh, synthesizing your conclusions and then telling a story that leads to action. Mm. Um, a lot of people say, gee, that really actually sounds quite like what the scientific method um, involves uh, because out of the first couple of steps, we set up hypotheses that we then seek to either prove or disprove that then become the basis of your conclusions. So when we sat down to um, to write the book, we thought that we... We wanted to write a book that wasn't simply for the, uh, the next generation that wanted to join McKinsey or Bain or BCG, but we wanted to write a book that would be um, of equal use uh, to people uh, struggling with the biggest social issues uh, that we face, um, and also a book that would be useful to people thinking about the range of problems that you face um, you know, in society, and we have we have cases like, you know, are my savings adequate for retirement, or should I have a knee arthroscopy? And uh, some of them, like where to serve in tennis, you know, may seem a little trivial, but we've put them in there for a purpose because it basically says, you know, by running through this process, you can pick up this capability, 
and we start off the book by saying that we believe that good problem solvers are made, not born, and that's what we aim to set out in the book. And I think you set it out very clearly with, as you say, a range of examples that are quite personal and individual, some that are more about an organisation and others that are much broader scope, like the societal problems that you talk about. One of the questions some readers might ask is, are there limits to this approach and the seven steps? Are there certain problems that are not fit for this approach? Or can this approach work pretty well for even the thorniest you label them as the wicked problems in the book. Well, um, you know, there's 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 areas of engineering and, and physics that go beyond my capability. I'm not sure I would say it of my my co-author, but we're heartened by the f the fact that we've had a go at a number of, of wicked problems and and thought about them. And I think before we sat down to write the book, we felt more comfortable just using you know the techniques in business problems and problems we'd seen in, in ventures, but when we started to think about problems that, as SVA knows well, you know, involve complex systems and the kind of work that you're doing in homelessness now and focusing on older women in particular, you know, they, they just strike us as being very good examples of how you take what looks like a very, a very large insoluble problem and you pick it apart. I, I think of it a little bit as almost like moving fiddlesticks, you know, so that you remove one out and you get a better angle on what what's going on here that keep, keeps the structure together or that changes the structure. And, and one of the examples I love in the book is uh, this case of overfishing in, um, in California. And that problem was solved when the Nature Conservancy agreed with the fishermen that they would buy out the licenses and then hand them back to the fishermen on the basis that they undertook a sustainable catch. Mm. So you, in that case, you had a market mechanism that sort of broke the logjam, you know, where everybody was in a race to the bottom uh, to exhaust a, um, a resource. And the other examples um, that we take in the book of how you can systematically look at um, something like obesity, which is a huge problem, as we know, in so many so many countries and work your way through to a bunch of interventions uh, that could make a, a significant difference. Um, so we're quite comfortable about tackling some of society's um, biggest problems. We, we did think that we might um, include problems like gun control in the US, but we felt and we do say in the book that there are some um, issues where it doesn't matter you know, what degree of hypotheses or facts you put on the table. Sometimes people have entrenched views and, and values that mean that there are limits to the problem-solving um, approach that we've, that we've used here. So that's a reason why we, we didn't, and I'm sure there would be a class of other uh, issues where we wouldn't advance our techniques as the, the first way to go about it. Mm, that's interesting. Um, I'm hearing where there isn't the openness to possibilities of what the different hypotheses might be or what analysis might be required, for example. The stakeholders aren't open to that, then the problem-solving approach, you probably can't go through the seven steps. No, I think, that, I think that's right. Yeah, that's very interesting. In conjunction with launching Bulletproof Problem Solving in Australia, you have also been running some masterclasses and a program with Solve It Australia. I'm curious, in your experience, 
working with many social sector organisations and as a philanthropist partnering with many, where do you think the social sector, particularly here in Australia, is already doing quite well in some of those problem-solving steps? And conversely, where do you think are weaknesses and the social sector really isn't performing in some of the steps? Um, Well, the observation, I think the starting point of almost every organisation that I've seen in the social sector, and I've seen a lot over the last uh, couple of decades, is that they're all resource constrained. And one of the things that follows on from being resource constrained is that they do a very, very good job of making the most of what they've got. And in particular, I I feel they prioritise well and they plan work well. But I feel that so often they're operating almost in an emergency room triage Mm. type model. So the flip side of what what they don't perhaps do as well as, um, as they might is have the time and the resources to take the first steps of, that we, we have in the process, which is defining a problem and, and then f- disaggregating it, and then having the, the resources to you know, do the analysis or you know, use big data and um, sophisticated regressions and things like that to understand root causes and, and relationships. So I, th- I think it's um, this lack of discretionary resources that has held a number of our organisations back. And when we had the masterclasses recently in Sydney and Melbourne, at the beginning, before the masterclass, I think some 13% of organisations um, said that they might need some help with problem definition. After the ma- masterclasses, two-thirds said mm. they felt they could do more work and get better. But my sense is that we know that in the sector, capacity building is the, the resources available are quite low uh, for it, and I think problem solving is just you know one part of the resource base that hasn't been there. So some of the topics I imagine you're seeing through the solver process and the masterclass are challenging questions about you mentioned homelessness and the work SVA is focused on around older women at risk of homelessness, but I imagine there's things around education, complex chronic health issues, mental health, etc. Paint a picture for us of what does this process look like in real life with complex social problems? It could sound like it's a whole lot of smart people sitting in rooms in front of whiteboards making slides and graphs and working at the computer. Can you bring to life a little bit, how do you get real people and real world problems into this process? Well, it's it's very clear to me that these examples that I was looking at uh, earlier this week of, you know, looking at how you you raise school attendance in, you know, remote Indigenous uh, schools or how you, you know, provide better justice for people with intellectual or mental uh, disabilities. It's the people who are at the front line, um, who have this deepest knowledge of their clients, who this is not work that's being undertaken by strategy departments or people that are, that are quite remote. It's, it's people with you know, the, the greatest knowledge um, of the problem and uh, who so often have the insight about what the, what the way out or the, the way through the, the problem is going to be. That, I think, is highlighted by the kind of example we gave in the book about the other hand program of how HIV was stopped. And um, yes, the program was uh, funded by 
the Gates Foundation now over a decade uh, you know, with a large amount of money. And yes, it was a colleague of mine who left McKinsey to take this role on. Uh, but he, tw he spent uh, 12 months as the leader of that project uh, where he spent almost all his t of his time with sex workers to try and understand you know, what was going on in those communities uh, where HIV was rife and, um, and was being spread. And it was through these literally thousands of interviews that they picked up this link between violence perpetrated against the, uh, the, the sex workers and, and the spread of, um, of HIV. And it was through that that the, the, the idea of a solution came forward of what they call the Avahan Plan, where they engaged whole communities with the journalist and the local lawyer um, you know, to, to alert to situations where you know, the violence was occurring. And um, that is the model that, that I think we see this problem-solving being built on. It's an iterative process where you're working, uh, as, as Ashok Alexander did, he started off with a proposal that, that, it was, that HIV was being spread through these long-distance truck stops, and they called it, the problem was men on the move. Mm. Well, that turned out to be an initial hypothesis, and the hypothesis was refined along the lines that I mentioned that linked violence and the spread of HIV, and then the solution you know, really coming from the women and the, themselves and their, and their communities. So the kind of things that we say uh, to people in organisations about listening well, being respectful, understanding constraints, seeing how constraints can be relaxed, having open conversations about how things might change um, and changing system conditions. Th these aren't fancy words, but they're the words that I think are you know, the hallmark of the problem solving that we think is so important. Rob, when you paint that picture, it's clear that people in the community had a pretty strong voice contributing to the iterative problem solving. Why do you think it is that when people hear the bulletproof problem solving process, they imagine something that's quite top down and divorced from people on the ground? Well, we certainly never meant it to be that way. The term bulletproof problem solving was a, an expression that was used um, in McKinsey, but it was just an internal one that said you tried to do your problem solving in a way w that was logical, it covered all the bases, it looked at the different options, and it just couldn't be shot down in flames, you know, because you said, oh, you had one assumption, and if that assumption is not correct, your whole argument and recommendations fall over. So that's how we were, we were taught to become good problem solvers, as I'm sure wasn't terribly different um, in, in your case. But that, that's just a measure of quality, and I don't see it as implying anything about top-down versus, mm. um, versus bottom-up. And in fact, as I say, the, we, we see a lot of parallels with the process we describe with design thinking, you know, which takes the user experience and the customer experience and, um, and that, you know, is, we think, at the essence of all good problem solving, which is starting at the bottom. So for something like um, design thinking, human-centred design, there's perhaps a more emergent process often around sensing and looking at the experiences on the ground. Would you see that as a different starting point than the problem definition or part of maybe getting to a good problem definition? Uh, no, I think it's uh, an incredibly important part of it. 
But you made me think of another example. I mean, the work in the Nature Conservancy that we that we do in, a nor in Northern Australia where we've been supporting Indigenous groups develop plans for Indigenous protected areas. Those plans in, in some cases may be on whiteboards, but in other cases they're actually drawn on the s in the sand by elders describing, you know, uh, what's important to them on, on country, you know, what's important in terms of, of stories, you know, what's important in terms of, of species. But it's that same process of listening and engagement that leads to either a conservation action plan or a development by design plan. When working with some of these uh, ch more challenging, complex societal problems, have you seen examples, perhaps it's like the gun control one, where there isn't really permission for that problem solving to progress at a particular point? Or maybe in a different way where the, the issue isn't really ripe for change yet and that things get stuck partway through the process? No, I think that's a, a really important observation and um, you know, we, we know in our, in our history with it was uh, the, you know, the terrible situation of the, uh, the massacre at Port Arthur that suddenly meant that the moment was there for a conversation and a change in, um, in policy. Uh, I had a, a conversation in Canberra a little while back with a, a group from Prime Minister and Cabinet, and it was interesting that seeing PM&C being, you know, one of these cross-cutting parts of the of the federal government where they have that ability to think across agencies, and so much of you know the issues that we see um, in things like um, education, you know, there are under under underlying. You know, family violence issues. You know, there's underlying mental health issues. You know, there's other elements of regional disadvantage. So, uh, and I know SVA, you know, looks at it much the same way. But it's this ability to take, you know, a cross-disciplinary, you know, cross-department perspective. That that's what we think comes naturally to doing good problem solving. But the way we've structured, you know, our our agencies doesn't always mean, you know, that they're in a good position to come to grips with the changes that they. Um, that they need to make. Rob, when we think about how to drive change at SVA, one of the topics we've been spending a lot of time talking about is systems change. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've thought about it as well. How do you see this approach applying to how to be a partner in and an actor in driving whole of system change? You've used the example of older women at risk of homeless, homelessness what are the drivers of better outcomes? Some of them are quite short-term. Many of them are deeply rooted in very complex challenges. You know, how do you use the steps to define the problem and then perhaps define smaller components of the problem to then get really pointy on the next series about disaggregating, prioritising and actually translating into yeah. work plans and analysis rather than getting caught at the top level? Yeah. Our, our experience with this is to do the things in a team where you bring together people with deep knowledge and people who, who also are quite open you know, to, to ideas and then you know, have a, a, a crack at the way you disaggregate the problem with the knowledge that you have and then test that with people and then as we have done recently with the Solve It Australia process, people look at that and go, well that's okay, that's sort of breaking it up into functions or activities or something like that but it's not really showing us a great deal of, of insight 
But if we looked at it this way, if we applied a different cleaving frame, as we call it, to you know, break, the, break the issue down, you know, would we learn some more? Would we learn some things that were, you know, that were different? And the example we were given the, in the book was we, when we started with our team at Oxford on looking at obesity, we thought, well, why don't we just start with calories in and calories out? And let's look at, are there any countries where obesity doesn't seem to be a big issue? And they said, well, let's look at the US versus Japan. And they said, okay, well, what's the difference there? Well, yes, Americans consume um, more calories on average than Japanese do. But the surprise to us when we did that was that the, the Japanese expended significantly more calories per day than Americans do. And well, what drives that? Well, it's the structure of cities and the fact that they walk to the train station and then from the train station to the office versus drive, uh, driving in the car. Having done that, we then said, well, gee, this, we hadn't thought too much about this, but this walkability seems to be a bit of a factor. So then we started looking at within the US and looked at 68 cities and we have a regression equation that was a bit off-putting to, um, to a lot of people, but it basically could explain something like 80% of the, of the variance between cities in terms of income levels, education levels, and walkability. There was also another factor called the comfort index, which was temperature and humidity. So we started to, to see how policy variables were coming into play, and, and it's that process of trying a cleaving frame, running some numbers, saying how far does that take us, then we, go, then we head off in a different direction to see where does the insight really come. So it is sometimes messy, um, and we're quite quick and used to trying one cleaving frame, got us so far, then try another one. And so this is a little bit where there's some of the art of problem solving comes in rather than you know, just follow this lockstep process you know, and a great answer um, will arrive. We like to feel, and we, one of the reviews on Amazon um, is a colleague of mine and he, he, he says, test it, practice it, think 1,000 hours. And we, we probably weren't game enough to say you've got to make an enormous investment in time, but we do want to give people that sense that you know, by reading the book they ought to get better at their problem solving but it's like anything, if you want to have mastery and uh, a great sense of accomplishment, well, you're going to have to put some work into it. Especially if it's an art rather than a technical skill that you can just learn once and then off you go. You've clearly been developing the art over your entire career, as has Charles and others with whom you work. What do you think would be the biggest impact of people reading the book who don't have all of that practice yet? What's the biggest thing you want them to take away and do differently? Well, I think the um, we want people to um, have that confidence that they can be given a relatively unstructured problem um, and that they can make quite a bit of progress, um, you know, in figuring out what, what a good problem statement is and then being able to break that problem down and then proceed uh, from there and um, you know to me having seen you know 30 plus not-for-profit organizations without great resources make a really good you know fist of this just adds to my confidence that so many people you know can can build this skill and will be better off for it I think it's very motivating <laughs> and, and very hopeful 
you mentioned earlier getting a team together and that's probably the, the last piece that I really wanted to look at is how important is having the right team skills, knowledge, size of team to going through this problem solving process and getting high quality solutions? Well, we think teams are crucial, and um, but it's 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 easier than people think to bring outsiders into a team. And that idea of saying, you know, so and so, you've had quite a bit of experience around this older women homelessness issue. Would you spend a few hours with us and see how, what progress we've made, you know, with the problem disaggregation and the prioritisation? And by bringing outsiders in, you're managing this this tension between comfortable solutions you know versus uncomfortable solutions which are often you know the the ones that in the end of the day are, are really quite important we use an expression in in the in the book about having team members who have um, an obligation to dissent mm. um, which is a term we used to use at McKinsey and in the early stage of in the early parts of the problem solving process you really want to keep the funnel quite wide you know where you can take on contrary views and then the further you go you want you heading towards convergence and uh, consensus you know I've had I've had teams over my career where there've been people who were just a real pain in the butt um, <laughs> with the issues that they raised and the concerns and why were we doing this and hadn't we thought of that and and you you would think gee we'd be better off if we if they weren't here but you're not better off um, you know, without dissenting voices, and and part of the being able to defend the logic of the argument, you know, that you you've put is that it's got to withstand scrutiny and it's got to withstand challenge. Create a team wherever you can, and um, dragoon your friends and colleagues in, um, you know, who can be that voice of inspiration or voice of caution um, in your problem solving. Rob, is there anything that you would like to? share to the SVA quarterly <coughs> listeners that you think would be important to add to the story? I think we've got over a hundred diagrams um, in the book and one of the great surprises to me is that we've, I'm meeting people now who are listening to the book on Audible and I'm quite surprised because to us the book is a visual book and problem solving is a, um, a process of visualisation and so going through this process of being able to draw trees, cross things out, the visualisation is all about logic um, and it's all about strong reasons and foundations you know, for, for doing your problem solving. And that's the, um, I guess, both encouragement I'd give um, you know, to, to, to reading the book. But if you don't feel you're a particularly visual person, this takes you down a path where you can build that skill. Mm. I have to agree. I started reading it on Kindle, and on my I don't know whether this is all Kindles, but on my Kindle I couldn't zoom in to see the pictures. So I ended up with um, the listeners won't be able to see. I ended up with the hard copy, and it's got post-it notes and highlighters and dog-eared <laughs> pages, which I found is a much better way within to engage with the book. Rob, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. On behalf of everyone at SVA, thanks for getting us started and thanks for coming and sharing this story and for helping build the problem-solving skills of people who are working on individual problems, on big organisations' problems, but most importantly on the complex societal problems that we hope will help drive towards the vision we have of an Australia where all communities and people thrive. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
Related podcasts and articles can be found on the SVA Quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly forward slash. Thank you.